Welcome to the NPO Media Podcast, a community service of NAMI, New York City, Staten Island. Opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent those of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. This episode is part two and features an interview with Nicole, the wife of New York City police officer Michael Balioni. Here are some clips from the previous episode. My name is Michael Balioni, and the way I came to this point is that my wife went through horrific drug addiction. 2011, my wife and I were on a motorcycle, and we got rear-ended, and that was the catalyst for her drug addiction. Nicole, I want to thank both you and Michael for sharing and helping educate others, including me, about the disease of addiction. If I may ask, what did you think about Michael's podcast? said to Mike how immensely proud I am of him. I have never heard him speak about anything, any subject matter, with such confidence and passion. And it was a long road to get to this point. And I'm very proud of him and the work that he's doing, you know, using our story and what we went through to help others. At this point, I'd like to ask you to tell your story. My name is Nicole. I have 2.5 years approximately, sober from oxycodone, otherwise known as blues. I didn't start on blues. I started on regular old Percocet approximately 2011 or so after a motorcycle accident with my husband, and I was prescribed it by a doctor. And as time went on, I, you know, my script was getting weaned and smaller and smaller, and I tried to stop, and I just kept getting very sick. So a friend of mine had a contact who was selling regular Percocet, and I was introduced to this person, and I started buying from her. And I, you know, started off with maybe taking two or three pills a day, which they were about $10 each, so maybe 30 bucks a day. And it was a really good arrangement because the dealer would leave the pills in my mailbox when I was at work. So I would leave the money in the morning. She would swap them out at some point during the day. And by the time I got home, I was able to pick them up with mail and nobody knew what was going on. And I'm sure that level of convenience only added fuel to the fire. Yeah. And then uh, I got pregnant and I had to rapidly come off of them and that was really difficult because I had to hide it from my husband and I didn't want him to know what was going on. That had to be enormously difficult living a secret life of addiction and then getting pregnant. I did come off of them from my pregnancy because an innocent child you know shouldn't be exposed to that sort of thing but I had a very 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 difficult labor with her and they they gave me Percocet in the hospital. And that set it off again, almost immediately. Wow. Yeah. And then when I reached out to the dealer that I had a prior uh, relationship with, she said to me, you know, I'm not really selling the Percocets. They were, they were called bananas. That was the, the street term for them. Said that she was selling something else that was better. It was more money, but it didn't have the Tylenol. So it was, quote, unquote, better for me but they were $20 a pill. So I tried it and it was like um, the first high that I had with the bananas all over again. 
So I was almost instantly hooked. And then, you know, my friends also kind of dabbled in the same thing. And my friend's girlfriend said to me one day, oh, you know, um, have you tried snorting them? And I said, no, I, I refuse to snort anything. I'm scared. And she said, well, try a little piece because you'll be able to extend it for longer for, you know, half the price. And that was a rocket train to addiction from there. I was almost instantaneously addicted. Wow, that is really terrifying. Yeah. Growing up, had you ever been exposed to anybody dealing with addictions? So I was raised in Brooklyn, in Bensonhurst. My father was a drug addict, which for the longest time, my mom told me that he had an addiction to cocaine. And that's part of the reason why I was apprehensive to ever snort anything, because I knew that he had a problem with a drug that he snorted. But I found out much later in life that it was actually heroin. And unfortunately, he actually passed away less than a month ago from a heroin overdose. I'm very sorry to hear that. It just put the period on, on the sentence of my life story. You know, I just got over this horrific drug addiction. Things were, you know, things were looking up and then that happens. It's just, and to, to know that it's heroin on top of that, it makes me feel like the blueprint was always there for me to have a problem with opiates. But I have a half brother through him that I have a relationship with. So there is a bit of a bright spot to it. Well, that's a good thing. So what was growing up like? So my mom raised me by herself and, you know, things weren't easy when I was growing up, but my mom always taught me that you'll never be poor in life if you have an education and to never just take things from other people to be self-sufficient. So she really, really pushed me to do well in school. And I went to a gifted and talented junior high school and then I went to specialized high school and despite going through some teenage issues, I went to community college for one year and uh, raised my GPA to a 4.0 and then transferred to college uh, at, in Binghamton University upstate. And while I was at Binghamton, I double majored and also held down a part-time job. And I was in a program called the Educational Opportunity Program. It's for students who are the first in their family to go to a four-year school. So I had a really good financial aid package. And I worked hard. It wasn't easy because I didn't really know how to study. But I worked hard. And I graduated in 2008, which is the year that the market crashed, unfortunately. So my job prospects were sort of limited. But I had a friend who was able to get me a temporary executive assistant position at a Wall Street law firm. That was fortunate. And it just so happened that when I started there, I was placed with a woman who had recently become partner. She was the first black female partner of the firm, and we had very similar personalities, and she saw to it that I got hired. And I was there for over 10 years. And, um, you know, I had this dream to go to Boston, but I didn't want a ton of loans when I graduated. You know, with that program I was in, I owed a minimal amount when I did get out. And the woman who I worked for at that law firm one year for Christmas, she said, Nicole, would you rather me give you a Christmas bonus or do you want me to pay off the remaining balance on your student loans? And I said, the loans, obviously, and she paid it off. So now I don't owe anything thanks to her. Wow, that was an amazing thing for her to do. Yeah, she's a wonderful person. 
So what type of work were you doing for the firm? I was working there at that same firm in the capacity of an executive assistant to a partner, and I had some other lawyers assigned to me. At the time that I was let go, I actually had two positions. I was the administrative assistant of the firm's pro bono programs, and then I was still that woman's executive assistant. That sounds very intense. It was a very high-pressure job, but I was there for a long time. And I had a pretty good rapport with the people that I worked with. And, you know, it's unfortunate that things went down the way they did, but they gave me plenty of chances to get myself together. It was because I was late all the time. I was chronically late. It was my tardiness, and I was taking long lunches. And part of the reason I was taking long lunches, I was picking up. You know, at a point in time in my drug addiction, I was, on certain days, I was picking up twice a day. So I would drive to Staten Island from Wall Street. I mean, I knew I was bad, but when I was doing that, I knew I was at a point that it was not sustainable in any way. And how did things progress from there? It progressively got worse. I would say 2016, in the summertime, I had ceased dealing with, I'll call her the mailbox dealer. Her and I were no longer in contact. She had stopped selling, I think. And I was introduced to somebody else, and they had a lot more contact and a very, very regular supply of these pills coming in. So I was able to get them with great ease. And because of the availability, I was picking up more. I, my appetite was growing. You know, I also had a, a very small child at home and with my husband's crazy hours at work and the pressures of a job on Wall Street, I was using the pills to basically be a, a super mom and stay awake, clean the house until 3 o'clock in the morning, make sure I took the baby to Gymboree on Sundays, and I had no pain. So at at that time, it didn't seem like I was really self-destructing. I realized how bad things were in October when I met someone who knew that dealer, and I unfortunately started up a relationship with them. That's when things just completely spiraled out of control. I will say that it sounds like you were at a place where many people move on to heroin. I was very scared to use heroin, and there's a point where I couldn't get pills at all, and I was terrified about getting sick, and I was able to meet someone who sold me heroin, and I saw it, and I said, "This this looks dirty to me. I don't want it, and I got rid of it. So I had it in my hand, and I didn't do anything with it which is not the case for most people. I'm very lucky in that we had the funds available for me to buy the pills because most people go to heroin because they're not affordable. I don't even want to think about how much I spent. That's something to this day I haven't forgiven myself for. So it's pretty clear you were in a dark place. How did you reach out to get help? Kind of a complicated question to answer. I knew I needed help, and I guess I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I told my husband maybe a year before 2016, you know, when my child was very small, that I needed help, that I was sick. And I was met with a lot of anger, resentment, and I was scared. I was scared that if he was angry enough that he could use his authority as a police officer to really sort of jam me up. So I let it go, and I continued to hide the secret. I mean, cops' wives are not supposed to be junkies. It's a disgrace. So... When my husband found out that I had 
met somebody else and that I was using with this person, he made my life very uncomfortable. Um, you know, there was the constant threat that he would take my child away and I, that I really need help. I, I, I want to go away to detox. So I went away to detox. But detox was only a week long. I needed at least 30 days in rehab, but I was concerned about losing my job. And I was concerned about not seeing my daughter. Ironically, when I got back from detox, I was let go from my job less than two weeks later. Wow, that must have been hard. So I didn't maintain being clean after that. The stress of losing a job that I had for over 10 years was too much for me. I couldn't handle it. I, wa I wasn't emotionally stable enough to handle that sort of news. Not long after that, so figure this is maybe February of 2017, I was served with divorce papers. That blew my mind because of the things that he was requesting in the divorce papers, that he wanted sole custody, that he wanted me, you know, he wanted a limited order of protection. I was terrified. And about a month and a half after that, I was in Staten Island. I was with the person that I was seeing, and I was pulled over for not signaling. And a cop went through my pocketbook and found three pills, and I was arrested for possession. So I was offered the HOPE program, and I took it because it was a no-brainer for me. I wanted help, and I certainly didn't want a drug charge on my record, so I took the program. And I'm so grateful that something like that exists because it gave me the chance to get into treatment and to clear my record. It sounds like you were really ready to accept help. Can you just touch on what the HOPE program is for a moment? Sure. The HOPE program is a pre-arraignment diversion program on Staten Island for low-level drug offenses. I'm not sure if it's only available to first-time offenders, but basically what it does is it offers the individual 31 days of treatment in lieu of receiving a, a charge. The DA will refuse to prosecute if you actively engage in 30 days of treatment. That's the deal that they make you. So when you're arrested and you're at the precinct, you have to stay there a bit longer because somebody from Hope actually comes there that night and gives you a Narcan kit and tells you about the program and explains what you need to do. And then a couple of days after that, you have to go to, it's a nonprofit on Staten Island. You go and you do an intake process. They set you up with an outpatient. So you completed the program? Yes, I did. I continued longer than, than just the 30 days. So I mandated myself beyond those 30 days because I knew I needed to be there. And outpatient is structured where when you first start, you're there for more hours a week than somebody that has, let's say, six months of clean time. So I was maybe in nine hours of meetings and individual therapy sessions a week right at the beginning. And I did go to some NA meetings, but I found more, I would say I was more comfortable in a clinical setting in the beginning because I wanted a trained professional to talk to me about why I was doing some of the things I was doing and how, you know, my past and my childhood sort of got me to that place because addiction is very complex. People don't just wake up one day and say, okay, I'm going to be a heroin addict. There's a lot of things that go on that sort of make you predisposed, I guess. Your point is well taken. So ironically, when everything was going on crazy, you know, when him and I were living together, I begged him and begged him, please, let's go see a marriage counselor, one that's not affiliated with the NYPD. I very, very much wanted to keep 
our problems away from anything to do with his job. But he wasn't willing to. And frankly, if the boyfriend wasn't in the picture, I think he would have been willing. But he was too consumed with this other guy, understandably so. So initially, we went to see an NYPD sanctioned therapist, and that was not successful. Then when we were going through the divorce proceedings, we were not co-parenting well. And I remember telling, telling my husband, we have to get on board. We can't walk into a courtroom and just throw words and allegations at each other and hope something sticks. We have to look like responsible adults. And he was hurt, and we walked in there, and we laid it all out for the judge, and she basically punished both of us in terms of visitation. So at that point, he was agreeable to see a therapist, and I very, very much wanted to see a therapist who was a licensed case asset. And we met this wonderful man named Tim Howard, who's located on Staten Island, and he laid it all out for Michael and I, and he was extremely helpful in those first few months. He also told us to go and see this film that was put out by Oasis called Reversing the Stigma. It chronicled the lives of people in treatment. And, you know, it talked about the consequences of their drug use and their path to sobriety. And I think it was helpful for my husband to see that we weren't alone in this, that there are other people and that it's a sickness. And if somebody needs help, don't turn your back on them. You know, they're not in their right state of mind. So things sound like they were kind of tense all over. Oh, absolutely. It was like living in my own personal hell. And then the guy that I was seeing, even in my drug-induced haze, something always felt off. But he used and I used, and that was what was really tying us together. Once I received divorce papers, I was rendered homeless at one point. So having fallen so far and becoming focused on recovery, the relationship with the boyfriend must have begun to crumble. He was isolating me from my friends and family. He used to try and control who I would talk to, which friends I would talk to, how often I would see them. He wanted to know the location on my phone. He wanted access to that. He was constantly accusing me of cheating. And I saw what was happening. So this guy is abusive. And from when I was thrown out in May... Through the end of August of that same year, he went from being verbally abusive to physically abusive. And I said to myself, I have to do something. I was able to do something about the drugs and work on that. And now I have to get rid of this because I, I can't hold in this secret of being physically abused. I have bruises on me. People know what's going on. So I had him arrested and now I have a five-year restraining order. And I think Telling my husband, hey, I had a drug problem, I'm doing something about it, and hey, I made a mistake with this loser, I have a restraining order, I'm, I'm serious about changing my life. I mean, it helped us eventually reconcile, but there were no more secrets anymore. Secrets will kill you eventually if you don't do something about them. It really sounds like you were going through some horrible times. So with everything out in the open, and while working to repair your marriage... How are things going with both of your families? The hardest part at this point in terms of dealing with the fallout from the drug addiction, besides the financial ramifications, is family members who are not on board. 
with my sobriety and where I am in sobriety and Michael and I reconciling our marriage, they're not happy. I, I don't know what exactly they want from us, but they're not happy. And I think it's really unfortunate that he's in a position where he doesn't have a relationship with these people right now. I, I don't understand how they don't think about what's best for our daughter. Would it have been better if our daughter didn't have a mother at all? Because I could have died. That was a very real option. Right. So, you know, he's putting all of his energy into advocacy work, and so am I. And in a way, it may sound petty, but I personally feel like that's the best thing he and I can do right now. Well, I certainly commend the efforts you and your husband are putting into advocacy work. I still have to say that it is a sad thing when family members either are unable or unwilling to accept education and try to change their outlook on things. Oh, that reminds me of something else that I had to learn to understand and accept when I was in treatment. I was told that I can't change how other people act or think about things. The only thing I can do is change how I react to situations and people. And actually, it gave me a sigh of relief to know that all I can do is focus on me and how I react to certain things. Michael has sent them all sorts of pieces of, you know, materials rather to try and educate them and they refuse to read it or they refuse to be open-minded. He can't shake them and say, you must believe this. You could only offer it. And if you've done everything that you can at the end of the day and they still don't want to accept it, then that's it. You have to walk away and focus on what you can do for yourself and for the situation. So let's talk recovery. More specifically, how do you stay clean? So I remember when I was an outpatient, we talked that subject matter to death. And I remember looking around the room and saying to myself, the people that are going to make it here, the people that are going to remain sober are the ones who are willing to completely change every part of their life. People, places, and things. You have to disconnect from anyone who you used with. You have to change the places that you go. So if you picked up from a certain area, stay away from that area. Don't go near it because it's going to trigger that part of your brain where you start thinking about potentially using again. You have to figure out who you are. I remember when I was heavily using, I looked at myself in the mirror one day and I said, I don't know who the, excuse my language, I don't know who the fuck I am anymore. Who is this person looking back at me? My eyes looked black. It was terrifying. And I had to rediscover what Nicole liked. What are things that I like to do that weren't drug related? Because for the longest time, my entire day revolved around drugs, picking up what time, where, who had them, how I was going to get the money. If I didn't have it, it was just, it was like a, a merry-go-round I couldn't get off of. It just completely controlled my life. I could never commit to plans with friends because if, let's say, I didn't have access to the pills, I would be sick and I couldn't go. And are you really living like that? No. So I was willing to change every part of my life. I had to cut people off and I had to rediscover me and things that I liked. And, you know, my brain, I think, was just ready to be done with it all. And I knew what the consequences were if I even thought about going back to that life. 
it wasn't worth it at all. So in the beginning, though, it's mainly staying away from people, places, and things, and keeping your thinking positive. And it seems that many have co-occurring mental health issues along with their addictions. We go to the doctor for all sorts of problems for our heart, our lungs, anything, but we don't focus on taking care of our, our brain. Probably the most important organ in our body in the same fashion. I'm personally disturbed by that. What's your message to someone who is currently using and thinks they've got it all worked out? So if you're an active addiction, I would say realize that you might be able to hide it now if you're a functioning addict, but it is going to spiral out of control at some point, and you should not be ashamed to ask for help. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of immense strength, and one should never be ashamed of that. No one is perfect, and anyone who acts like they are, bullshit, essentially. And if you're a family member who has someone, you know, who you love that is using, I would say this, you know, addiction is a family disease. And there's a lot of tough love, I think, talked about in these uh, Naranon meetings, Al-Anon meetings. Yes, I do think that you should set up boundaries so that you don't make yourself sick at the end of the day. But maybe after the person, the addict, has repeatedly failed to go to treatment or accept help in some way. Try to be empathetic at first. Say, I love you. I love you, and I want to help you on this journey. And see what sort of reaction that yields. Because most addicts are broken, and they're numbing for some sort of pain that they're not ready to deal with. Try and address it with some sympathy. And if that doesn't work, then, of course, set up boundaries and you know, do what you need to do. But I feel that there's a very harsh reaction initially, and that can be counterproductive. A little empathy is not going to hurt anyone at the end of the day. Be kind, be humble. You never know what somebody else is dealing with. I know you asked Michael the question of what are some signs of someone is using. I would say some of the signs to look out for would be constant flu-like symptoms. So runny nose, watery eyes stomach that constantly hurting, frequent trips to the bathroom. Further to that, another thing would be someone who's just using the bathroom often during events. If you're out at, let's say, a gathering for Christmas and one of your relatives is using the bathroom six, seven times, they might be breaking something up in there to use. Another sign could be emotional instability. So I often wondered if people thought I was bipolar because my emotions were all over the place. One day I would be talkative and happy and everything was fine. And then the next day I would be crying and hysterical. And it's when you're coming off of the drugs that it's just a flood of negative emotion. And then when you get the drugs, then you're super happy. But people whose emotions are just drastically different from day to day, that's a sign that there might be something else going on. Missing money is always a sign, especially if the money is withdrawn from an ATM in a similar location. You see repeated withdrawals for the same amount of money at the same ATM branch of your bank. That might be where the dealer lives. Or let's say pinpoint pupils is a telltale sign or itchiness. So I know Michael touched on some things that he thought, but from an addict's perspective, from somebody who used to use, I see it a little bit different than him. 
Thank you so much for that critical information. So what are you doing for yourself to remain well? Things that I'll do to take care of me is I'll make sure, you know, I'll go get my nails done or I'll go for a walk. I'll listen to music to sort of decompress. I know my limits now. I know when to stop and say, okay, I need to take an hour. And I never knew how to do that before. I'm always looking for things to do with my daughter, you know, ways to enrich her life. You know, she's in UPK right now and she's going to be taking the gifted and talented test for kindergarten very soon. And just seeing the world through her eyes gives me a great sense of peace because I know I'm doing something right with how happy of a child she is. That's absolutely great. What do you see happening for yourself in the future? Well, right now I am thinking about getting a master's in something because that's always been a goal of mine. And I eventually would love to have another child. And I need to work on rebuilding my credit after all the damage that I did. But now I just focus on taking time for self-care and being the mother that I have wanted to be. 100% of my attention was not focused on my baby because I was worried about when I was going to pick up next. Now I don't have to even think about that stuff. So I'm able to focus on her always. And it's great, you know, I get to go to her school and bring little trick-or-treat bags on Halloween and do all those fun little things. So I'm focused on that. I'm focused on taking care of me and finding more things that I'm interested in that keep my brain active. And ultimately, I really, really want to help other people who are struggling. You know, I've lost so many friends to drugs. It's really pitiful. And when everything was going bad in my life, at one point I said, wow, I feel like my life is requiem for a dream. You know, that that last scene, that montage where one person ends up in jail, another person ends up prostituting themselves. One of my friends died and another one was in jail and another one lost their child and one overdose. It was just this complete collapse. So I never want to ever be in a position like that. And I would love to help other people who are struggling because they're not alone. Nicole, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast and putting it all out there. It's brave and inspiring and powerful. And I hope people get as much from this as I have speaking with you. So thank you very much. Thank you. Take care.